listeners, I'm Ellie Kent, editor of New Mandala, where we are currently featuring the second series of podcasts on the Philippines Beyond Cliché. These podcasts have been created by Dr. Nicole Curato from the University of Canberra's Centre for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance, and she joins me now by pre-recorded phone as we socially distance ourselves from COVID-19. Nicole, today's episode looks at a topic no doubt close to both of our hearts, and that is sexism. You spoke to the ANU's Dr. Maria Tanyag about sexism in the Philippines. What did you learn? Well, there's always lots to learn from Maria Tanyag, but for me, the highlight of this conversation is her strong emphasis on how issues related to gender and sexism are never really just about gender and sexism. Um, These issues are closely linked to colonial legacies and imperial mindsets, religious ideology, um, patterns of violence and impunity, as well as social policy. So this conversation was also recorded at the Headley Bull building at the ANU, and I hope our listeners enjoy this chat. So thank you, Maria, for welcoming us in your office here at the ANU. And the cliche we will unpack today is about sexism. Is the Philippines a sexist country? So the question may be straightforward, because if you just listen to debates in the Senate and House of Representatives about divorce, mm-hmm. so for our listeners, Philippines is the only country in the world without divorce, aside from Vatican City. Or when we listen to speeches of President Duterte, the answer to this question is quite straightforward, right? When a country gives license to the head of state to order the military to shoot female rebels in the vagina, when the, la- when the crowd laughs with a president who admitted to ogling Vice President Lenny Robredo's legs, then obviously this is a freaking sexist society. But also, there's an irony here. Then when we look at data, the Philippines consistently lands in the top 10 of countries that do well in the Global Gender Gap Index. So we rank alongside progressive countries like Iceland, Sweden, and Finland. So obviously there's something complicated going on here. So as a feminist and international relations scholar, help us make sense of this. Is the Philippines a sexist country? Thank you so much, Nicole. I'm very happy and feel very privileged to be joining you in this conversation. Um, And you're quite right. I think um, at this stage, um, with the maturity of feminist movements globally, and especially in the Philippines, I think we can go beyond um, the standard question of is the Philippines sex, uh, is the Philippine society and politics sexist or not? Because when we look at um, the growing body of evidence, it calls us to actually disaggregate gender equality issues. Because at the moment, now we see a broad, um, uh, wide normative acceptance that gender equality matters. So we have now global um, international legal frameworks that recognize gender equality is a fundamental indicator for building peaceful, more cohesive societies. Um, And and you're quite right, the Philippines actually is a regional leader, um, uh, the top country in the Asia-Pacific when it comes to bridging gender equality gaps. But when we're talking about the the Global Gender Gap Index, it measures disparities between men and women. It rarely, or the measure, that index, doesn't adequately capture um, inequalities among women. Mm. And when we look at inequalities among women, that's when we begin to understand or disaggregate gender equality issues based on multiple overlapping issues of inequality, based on class, religion, sexuality, 
um, uh, ethnicity, and also geographic locations. Yeah. Um, and so when we start unpacking and we look and focus on, well, what can we make sense of when we're talking about gender equality um, in relation to other axes of inequalities, um, as I've mentioned. And in that, we see that actually, while the Philippines has made progress in terms of promoting women's political participation and economic participation, and we'll get to that later on, um, we have actually had very little progress um, when it comes to issues that are so-called doctrinal issues. So feminist scholars have identified a broad pattern globally, but significantly, um, the Philippines is a very relevant case study here because of um, strong elite um, religious, which are both political and economic um, actors, um, have managed to uh, retain a very strong influence, mm -hmm. both in society and politics and economics, over issues they recognize as doctrinal. And these issues are often around the preservation of the family, control over sexuality, and um, biological reproduction. Um, and in, the, in these issues, we start to see that it's not just men who are um, uh, 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 reversing um, as well as, uh, you know, de detrimenting um, uh, progress for gender equality issues. But also it involves the complicity of women, um, in particular elite conservative women in the country. So actually, yeah, when I, when I look at your body of work, intersectionality figures in a lot in that work so of course I'll ask you to define for us with inter what intersectionality mm -hmm. means but for me this is most pronounced when you talk about women in politics yeah um, there's a tendency to glamorize the status of female politicians in the Philippines but if we look at them come on mm. they're all from political dynasties yeah, yeah. they usually take over the position of their fathers mm. their husbands yeah. so do you think that's something we should celebrate because when I look back at the reproductive health debates Exactly. Women aren't natural allies when it comes to progressive Absolutely. women's issues. Like what you said, a lot of them want to preserve conservative mm. and sometimes quite oppressive mm. um, views yeah. couched as family values. Exactly. And this is global. And, and we can unpack um, that later on. So while the Philippines um, is exceptional because of its history and its, you know, the, the the ways in which authority has been defined, and that's why we get these, um, you know, opportunities for women to rise into power and be elected as presidents. Um, but it's a global problem, and and it's something that we're seeing elsewhere. This whole resurgence of maintaining traditional family or the protection of the family as part of maintaining national identity. Um, but in the Philippines, it's interesting, and more perhaps in the region as well, where we've actually actually seen women rise to higher levels of politics, where in, in many places, for instance, in the West, quote unquote, yeah. you have not seen the same level. Um, women in the Philippines have managed to uh, obtain greater per percentage of parliamentary representation, as you've mentioned. Um, and we've also had very high labor force participation globally. But the irony is, as you've mentioned, we have had two female presidents, and I've studied this um, for both my master's and PhD. The, the irony is that we've had two women presidents, but under the terms of both presidents, they have managed to actually um, block 
significant advancements in sexual and reproductive health. And that's we're talking about Corey Aquino and Gloria Macapagal-Arroy, who both project very strong um, Catholic identities. Um, right. And then in other studies, we've shown that, again, when we're talking about political elites and families, these dynasties, the women inherit positions, um, and so there is gender there, but also class, right? Um, and, and these um, ways in which often it is very hard for women in privileged positions to understand the barriers to mm -hmm. bodily autonomy because they have those economic um, um, bases to begin with. For instance, the whole issue with the RH bill has been that it was contentious more because it demands the state to provide access to services as well. And it's because there is a reallocation of resources. Yeah. Um, it's not just simply buying, because um, we do have condoms accessible, um, but not everyone can afford that. And that's why it was so contentious, because it deliberately asked government um, or the state to provide services and that's when it becomes challenging for the elite who are both Catholic, uh, religious or um, support very fundamentalist views on on religion because it also involves redistributing resources, resources. there's a class dimension yeah but I guess if you are in a fairly wealthy family in the Philippines you can easily say yeah having eight children is great mm. but that's also because you have an army of nannies who exactly. can help you yeah. raise your children while these women mm -hmm. um, get top positions, whether in government yeah. or in corporations. So I think Something. the message here, I, I agree with your reading here, we have to place in the foreground the intersectional dimensions yeah. of, of feminist politics um, in the Philippines. And I yeah, I mean, I think it's a good way to pivot on a discussion uh, on, on policies because we can also say that the policy context in the Philippines, and some people would say this actually, that our laws, for example, when it comes to migrant workers, is sets the global standard. And an implicit dimension, implicit or explicit dimension of this policy is to protect vulnerable migrant workers who are usually women, mm -hmm. right? So recently, mm -hmm. President Duterte signed a law that requires government to publish and disseminate a handbook for Filipinos working mm -hmm. overseas. And this handbook tells migrant workers, like both of us, mm -hmm. um, their rights and responsibilities, which should empower us against mm -hmm. abusive employers. Mm -hmm. Now, ANU is not a, an abusive employer, <laughs> though academia in general, I think, is quite abusive as an industry. Um, but, but the law really is targeting migrant workers engaged in domestic labor, mm -hmm. care, and hospitality mm -hmm. industries, yeah. which have particular vulnerabilities. But of course, policy design is different from policy practice. So what's the situation in the Philippines? Yeah. This is a very interesting. And actually, my goal has always been to show the connections between our conversations earlier around conservative religious ideology in the Philippines and how it restricts bodily autonomy. Because um, it has very much um, clear for me relevance, and I try to show that with my research, in the ways in which women's bodies through labor, export, and migration are also shaped in religious ideology. And that's how insidious it is, because um, in a lot of the cases, um, when you look at the promotion or how we 
fashion uh, competitive advantage in the global labor market, it is really to emphasize that Filipino care workers are innately homemakers. Um, right, docile, subservient. Exactly. And a lot of, again, scholars um, focusing on feminist um, and race um, politics here have emphasized that historically we have positioned the, co the country, the state, um, has positioned itself as the best exporter of care workers. Um, and it is um, always also couched in religion because um, Christianity, for instance, emphasizes, you know, Virgin Mary yeah. and, and the, 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 um, uh, the importance of family mm -hmm. to, to Filipinos. And what has happened is in positioning all of that, we've actually also indirectly positioning in the labor market indirectly also privilege once more that conservative um, religious ideology of what it what makes a good woman mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and that is someone who is good at caring who is good at being selfless martyring yeah. herself um, in order to you know leaving her family in order to care for her um, but the problem is that there are gaps um, Sorry, despite the rhetoric of and you're right you know we've got the one of among the best policies and this is largely credited to the feminist movement right women's movement not so much um, not all the time women in politics right um, but these progressive policies are often in clash with realities both nationally and economic uh, global economy where even at the global level that labor especially domestic labor, is devalued, right? We still, up to now, hear a lot of abuses um, that are occurring and lack of protection. Um, I know for a fact that um, Duterte even issued a statement, so you're right, that we have progressive policies, but he also mentioned in a statement, and I can give you the specific um, link to that, he mentioned that women should just carry contraception um, because rape comes with the territory. So if you go and work overseas as a woman migrant workers, especially, again, we know this trope mm. when you go to the Middle East, that it, there is a heightened risk of sexual violence. Right. Um, and so Duterte mentions, we'll just have to deal it on your own, right? I mean, just have contraception. But this sort of pronouncements we see at the global level too, when, for instance, with the Zika crisis, um, women are told to, well, just get contraception mm. never mind the pre-existing structural barriers to accessing contraception to begin with first is the stigma um, and, and the more you know um, imbibed um, control that women have where they would not want to access contraception because um, if you know when you do that then you're assumed to be sexually promiscuous you know there's still all of that baggage but then also that you do not have access all the time especially if you still also have criminalization of abortion in, in certain places. And what happens in the Philippines, again, we're notorious for this, is that we still have not solved issues around lack of access to abortion. Mm. Um, so this is the broader picture that we're seeing, and it's not as clear-cut as saying we're sexist or not, because actually we are making very good progress at, uh, in terms of legislations and policies. and women's movements in the Philippines have historically been more um, solid or they have had strategic bargains um, that have resulted in specific leg uh, policy outcomes. Yeah. 
but the everyday realities are messy. And for me, I really focus on the, the, the intersection between religion and economy in the Philippines and in the ways in which we keep re-embedding um, a certain way of understanding which bodies matter um, and not. Well, speaking of messy realities and contentious issues about the use of the human body, the Philippines is also in the middle of heated debates about the anti-discrimination bill. Yeah. And there's a huge catalog of hate crimes um, targeted against LGBT mm -hmm. communities in the Philippines. And I think for me, the most memorable is the case of Jennifer Laude, a mm -hmm. trans woman who was mm -hmm. killed by an American military personnel, mm. Joseph Scott mm. Pemberton. Mm -mm. And Scott Pemberton was found guilty of homicide, mm -mm. not murder. Mm -mm. And I, remo I remember the court said that he acted out of passion and obfuscation. Mm -mm. And this gruesome homicide of a Marine officer slaughtering a trans woman and dunking her head on a toilet bowl, I think just crystallizes how much hate there is. And mm -mm. you're starting to see um, these stories again back mm -hmm. on mainstream news. Mm -hmm. So like what you said earlier, issues on gender is a global issue at the moment. Um, it's not peculiar to the Philippines. We see this around the world. Uh, we need not look far. Sodomy is still a crime in Malaysia. So I guess my question to you is what are the particularities of the LGBT debates mm -hmm. in the Philippines and also how much of it is part of the global conversation? Thank you for reminding me about that case. And it's just really brought to, again, the fore, not just class and gender, but race too. Um, yeah. And that has, you know, we need to really unpack that and the legacies of, of colonialism and imperialism in the Philippines. Because um, for me, the challenge for us is to see, really see the connections um, and to make visible all these connections because these are not isolated issues. And, mm -hmm. and we start to understand the violence that are inflicted on um, trans people we see that it's, it's, like you said, it's the ways in which bodies are um, violated slash valued in, in very different ways. Um, I, I might say something controversial, but I think it's something that I'm also processing. So looking at my Facebook um, with the recent you know, debates over the anti-discrimination bill, um, because I've done work um, to understand gender in the peace process in the Philippines. So I have, um, you know, connections with Muslim um, uh, moral groups um, or people from moral areas. And they are opposed to, to the anti-discrimination bill. Um, but I find that opposition even more peculiar. Mm. Because for me, one of the bases for, or the strong basis for advancing um, moral rights in the Philippines is deeply connected to the struggle of LGBT people in the Philippines. And I really find it very difficult to read that the very same people who are claiming for recognition of their humanity mm. are, very, are so easy to deny humanity for others. Yeah without knowing that for a very long time, moral, moral um, people up until now are denied their rights or are, not, are recognized as less mm. uh, second-class citizens um, in many places because of prejudice, um, because of religious um, you know, discrimination. But here you see certain op you know, opposition because and among the specific things that I've read, and perhaps I'm in a, in a bubble, but I, I've seen it as well um, with not just Muslim 
religious groups, the Catholic relig uh, religious groups, you know, denying uh, or criticizing LGBT um, the movement for demanding special rights um, without knowing that a lot of these the, the, the right to self-determination that mm -hmm. um, more groups are also demanding from the state are in the same continuum, right? It is demanding recognition for their humanity and the redistribution of resources for that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the same in Australia as well when they had the equal marriage vote, right? Mm. So a lot of minority communities who also have strong religious convictions who are also discriminated in their society are the same communities also that express horizontal violence um, against other communities that also claim for recognition, exactly. which makes it a very tricky space to understand mm. configurations of power. Are, are we imposing um, oppression towards each other, whereas exactly. we should be punching above, right? We shouldn't exactly. be punching each other as a minority Absolutely, and, and can't we do better, right? We're missing opportunities for solidarity exactly. here. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the more that we think in us versus them, ways of thinking and again I'm emphasizing this is not just in the Philippines because we see the polarization of societies through the rhetoric of us versus them globally and we've got people researching on populism um, and this builds on some of that um, and there are clear economic gender class right. solidarities that we should be um, forging together um, I don't know if that answers but it's something that I've been observing which I find really disturbing and troubling mm -hmm. that here we have made progress in some ways to combat religious discrimination obviously still a long way to go but why can't we see the same or extend the same compassion and humanity um, to yeah. to others because the comments are graphic and, and the vilification of of the trans um, community has been graphic um, but here is i mean again um, i only know of a small bit but there's a broader politics here with the women's movement in the Philippines and I know other scholars have done a more detailed account of this is because even the women's movement is fractured along these issues because these are doctrinal issues and you also have within the women's movement in the Philippines those who believe um, um, religious um, with religious conviction that a woman's place is you know to be a mother right. um, and they will advance gender equality issues so long as, as it conforms to that heteronormative mm. family Filipino family identity yeah so yeah it's it's characteristic of how people now say we have to talk about feminisms not just one feminism but that's a different debate altogether we might get yeah. derailed if we discuss <laughs> it here but yeah it's good to flag it there but I think well, one of the final questions I'd like to ask you has to do with um, feminism more along the global public sphere level because I'd be remiss not to ask you as an impressive IR scholar uh, about this topic how can we advance a feminist agenda in the global public sphere and um, I will make a plug here because Maria and her colleagues have a fantastic article in no less than the Lancet you've published in The Lancet, that makes a case for a feminist global health agenda. And we'll put a link to that article in the transcript of this podcast. So I think my question is, how do we situate the Philippines uh, in the world when it comes to the gender justice agenda? So much of what I've done so far, and thank you for your glowing face, but I'm still learning. <laughs> much of what I've done and learning from um, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants is to always ask, questions of peace and security from the margins 
and, and we start to understand the global by looking at those who have had multiple overlapping exclusions. And that's where the intersectionality is. If there's one thing that um, our listeners need to understand, intersectionality is not just adding identities in a pot and mixing them together, but it is really rethinking in fundamental ways what are our concepts and our assumptions with the idea that there are um, layers upon layers of uh, inequalities that structure the possibilities, so what, what can be imagined um, as, as good or bad, or what are, what are the values that can be thought of when we start from those who are multiply excluded. And so in asking that, I always start from the Philippines, because obviously that's where I'm from and it's where I'm um, you know, more familiar with, with language and for doing research. But I also think that the Philippines presents very interesting um, confluences of those multiple layers that I talk about. So race, gender, class, sexuality, religion. Um, it, it all uh, con conglomerates or forms in different ways when we start from the Philippines. So where I am now at in terms of how do we advance a feminist agenda that perhaps um, allows for that solidarity that I've mentioned is to really think of it in terms of the environment now. Because the depletion of women's bodies, and this is where the health comes in, is often shaped by the depletion of the environment. And this is what I'm very interested in looking at for the next step, is to really understand theoretically and empirically the ways in which that, that confluence of the ideology, the religion, and the economics, and the politics um, are part of that extraction of the environment. Um, but has also very clear gendered impacts. So a good example of that is that, um, and here is when we can start piecing the puzzle together. The Philippines, um, you know, talking about us a very, as a global and regional leader, we are also the most dangerous place in the world to be an environmental defender. So there is a, glo uh, a global NGO that monitors um, the number of people that die in line with protecting environment, or ancestral lands and, 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 and domains. And the Philippines is the top for that. We have to ask why, right? For a country where supposedly we've had very good gender equality progress, we are seeing that a lot of the violence that are occurring, the most acute forms of violence and, and, and dehumanization is occurring in relation to the protection of the environment. And we need to understand the ideology um, that are part of that and, and the, the ways in which, why are there people who would risk life and limb to protect their environment? Um, and these are not just men, these are women as well um, that are risking their lives to protect their environment. Um, and what can we learn from, from them in ways that protect not just these people who are protecting their environment, but also the environment in ways that actually build solidarities with oh. other um, indigenous people globally and, and with the climate strikes that are occurring, which are youth-led. And the most visible figure now at the moment is a young woman called Greta Thunberg would probably be vulnerable in the Philippines if she were a Filipino exactly. environmental activist. Exactly. Absolutely. She would not have reached to that level um, because we know that in many places in Mindanao, um, up north in the Philippines, we are seeing a lot of these killings occurring um, 
at this precise m moment. Um, and, and therefore, um, that begs a feminist or gender lens because we need to understand that much of these um, um, violence are deliberately perhaps being shaped by a very hyper-masculine government that we are in that you know legitimizes the use of violence um, more so than before. We were not saying that other administrations have not done the same, but that we are not getting better at challenging the, the use of violence in the country. Wow, that's a lot to process. We've covered so much in our discussion. So thank you, Maria. And in conclusion, maybe we should just summarize. Is the Philippines a sexist country? Yes and no. <laughs> thank you, Maria, for enjoying this interview with me. I hope you learned as much as I did for I our have. listeners. And we look forward to hearing from you again. Thank you. Thank you.